I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. NBC Tonight at 8, 7 Central. I'm your guardian angel. This is the season to believe miracles can come true. I want to live again. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. It's a wonderful life, a holiday tradition you can't see anywhere but here. James Stewart, Donna Reed, a Christmas Eve event. It's a wonderful life, NBC Tonight at 8, 7 Central. Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight and dance by the light of the moon? George Bailey, I'm lucky to the day I die. George Bailey, every Christmas Eve you make me cry. Oh, George. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Potter wanted to own everything in Bedford Falls, but George Bailey was there to stop him. Since then, Potter seems to have become a role model of sorts for those doing business in America. Over the past 30 years, there has been an increasing consolidation in almost every field. 70% of food is made by seven companies. There are three big auto manufacturers, 
four major airlines, three phone companies, and six dominant media companies. And a hot property like Wonderful Life is a real prize for an industry driven by what they call IP, intellectual property. Thank you very much. Thanks, folks. Welcome to the show. My name is David Letterman. We come to you on the NBC television network, a subsidiary of RCA, where we bring good things to living. (laughs) We bring good things to life. Thank you so much. RCA yesterday was taken over, merged, they're calling it a merger. It was one of those gun-to-the-head mergers, ladies and gentlemen, by uh, the friendly folks at GE, whose slogan, of course, is, we bring good things to life. It's a deal. Well, almost. GE and Vivendi have agreed on a price for the French company's 20% stake in NBC Universal. As American media consolidates, by the mid-2000s, NBC television show 30 Rock, taking place inside NBC's famed headquarters in New York City, seeks to parody the makers' own apparent sense of the absurd effects they feel all around them. I'm trying to produce a Christmas special that makes this a wonderful life look like Pulp Fiction. Fictional NBC executive Jack Donaghy, played by Alec Baldwin, the actor, stands in for so many real execs inside so many real media corporations. You see... GE owns Kitchen All of Colorado, which in turn owns JMI of Stanford, which is a majority shareholder in PokerFastLane.com, which recently acquired the Shine Hardwick Company, which owns NBC outright. And then, at the start of the 2010s... Have you seen this? They keep talking about Scheinhardt selling NBC to uh, Cable Town. That's never going to happen. How could a company from Philadelphia buy a company from New York. That would be like Vietnam defeating the United States in a ground war. Good morning, we've been sold. In a big story for the entertainment world, the cable company Comcast has agreed to acquire NBC Universal from General Electric. I remember when NBC started promoting It's a Wonderful Life, you know, during that block of TV. Friends, Seinfeld, Cheers, ER. And NBC would be advertising heavily um, for It's a Wonderful Life and saying and bragging, we're it. We're it. This is the only place. And I would, I'd get all angry because I'd think, oh, I want to watch it all the time, not just, you know, two nights in December, um, early December, and then uh, Christmas Eve. The angry man, upset that Wonderful Life no longer plays on every channel constantly in December, is Jeff Williams, whom you'll remember from an earlier episode. He recalls vividly how NBC built on Wonderful Life over the 1990s. Basically, NBC ended up owning the holidays because you start off with NBC running the uh, Macy's Day Parade. They've got all their sitcoms doing um, holiday episodes, and then and they've got you know the special with the tree, you know the Rockefeller Center, and you know, all that. And then it you know it all ends Christmas Eve. They've got. Uh, it's a wonderful life. And so, you know, NBC, they pretty much, they own the holidays. They've, they've sewn it up and, you know, and yeah, I'll, I'll, I watch it all the time. You'll recall from episode one, how wonderful life was seemingly everywhere on TV for years. Then 1994, a deal is suddenly announced with NBC, making them the exclusive long-term TV rights holder to this American institution. It's tended to be among the most watched movies on TV each year in November and December. 
That's a lot of ad revenue. It's a wonderful life. Sponsored in part by Kmart. Low prices and extras you won't find anywhere else. Dubbing himself the TV professor, Jeff Williams went in search of the real story of why, for most of the past three decades, the movie could only be found twice a year on NBC. It's a convoluted story, but Sheldon Abend was a literary agent. And he's watching TV one day, and he sees this movie, and gets really mad. He represents Cornell Woolrich, who wrote a short story that the movie Rear Window was based on. It was called a, It Had to Be Murder. Cornell Woolrich died in 1968. And Sheldon is like, this is wrong. I run Cornell's estate. I should be getting this money. He takes it to court, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And they rule in Sheldon Aben's favor. They're like, yeah, you should have gotten money for Rear Window. Sheldon Abend and this 1990 Supreme Court decision would, in fact, have no direct legal bearing on the wonderful life situation. But the widespread misunderstanding that it did will have an impact on the story. Uh, more on that later. First, a quick refresher is probably helpful here. Uh, you'll remember the short story, The Greatest Gift, on which Wonderful Life was based, was written by Philip Van Doren Stern before work on the movie itself began. Uh, you met his granddaughter, Laura Robinson, in the first episode. I'll bring you closer to Philip and his family in future episodes. Failing to find a publisher for his independent story, Philip copyrighted it in 1943 and sent it out with 200 Christmas cards, interesting RKO Studios, and eventually Frank Capra. Scripts were written by other parties under contract to RKO and later Frank for what became Wonderful Life. After Wonderful Life failed to meet expectations at the box office in 1947, Banks threatened to foreclose on its director, Frank Capra, who was forced to sell his independent company, Liberty Films, and its movie, Wonderful Life, to the movie studio, Paramount. Less than a decade later, Paramount resold it to National Telefilm Associates, NTA, whom you learned about in an earlier episode. They, and their legal team, led by Rashida Jones' grandfather, overlooked renewing the copyright of Wonderful Life in 1974. And thereafter, the public perception became that anyone could do anything they wanted with the movie. In 1984, former Wonderful Life copyright holder NTA essentially merged with a former movie studio and changed its name to Republic Pictures. And then comes one summer day in 1993, just over three years after that Supreme Court ruling I mentioned. Jeffrey Baker of Good Times Home Video receives a letter. Much like the letters that around 200 others across America are receiving at this time. He opens it. The law offices of James P. Tierney, 100 Wilshire Boulevard, 12th floor, Santa Monica, California, 90401. June 10th. 1993. Dear Mr. Baker, we have learned that you may have been exploiting the motion picture entitled It's a Wonderful Life. If you have been exploiting the film in any media, you have been violating my client's rights under the copyright laws of the United States. The above-referenced music publishers own all of the copyrighted music in the film and Republic is the exclusive licensee of the right to copy and exploit the music in the film. Further, 
The film is based upon the separately copyrighted literary work by Philip Van Doren Stern entitled The Greatest Gift. Republic owns the exclusive rights to exploit the story as embodied in the film during the renewal term of copyright in the story. We understand that the copyright in the film as a derivative work was not renewed and, as a result, any new matter added to the separately copyrighted musical compositions and the story in order to create the film is apparently unprotected by copyright in the United States of America, its territories, and commonwealths. However, copyright nonetheless exists for the musical compositions and story used in the film because their respective copyrights were timely renewed. As the United States Supreme Court recently stated, the use of copyright works in the creation of a derivative work does not limit or impair the exclusive rights granted by copyright law to the proprietors of the underlying works. Los Angeles Times, November 23rd, 1993. Company Town, you will with less wonderful life, tune in. Over the next month, we'll see what a holiday season's like without its wonderful life airing nonstop on television. It's one of the life stopped being freely available for broadcasts as a result of the Supreme Court decision in 1990, upholding the rights of the owner of a short story on which Alfred Hitchcock based his rear window thriller. That caused Republic Pictures, which had assumed it's a wonderful life was in the public domain, to look closely at the rights it held to The Greatest Gift, an obscure short story by Philip Van Doren Stern, and which Chapra loosely based his film, bolstered by a US Supreme Court decision Lawyers are now succeeding at doing what the film's evil Mr. Potter always wished he could do, bring in the dailies. There are some factual errors within this Los Angeles Times reporting by Jim Bates that you just heard, the result of Jim's direct conversations with people inside Republic. Just before Thanksgiving, 1993, Jim learns of the letters that have gone out and heads to Republic's offices in Beverly Hills to find out what exactly is going on. He meets with Russell Goldsmith, its CEO, who makes clear he believes his company is losing millions they might otherwise be making from Wonderful Life. Why you, Russell? You know, because part of my beat was covering film companies, and I know I'd met with Russell and Miller's world a couple times and got to know them. I also covered Blockbuster as a, as a company, and, you know, they made investment in Republic. So, uh, you know, I got to know Russell. I actually, actually, Russell's father, um, well, too, his father, I, I previously, prior to covering entertainment, covering banking, and Russell's father, Bram, uh, was the head of City National Bank, uh, which was the bank to the stars in Hollywood. Russell later, after leaving Republic, ran City National for a number of years and just retired. With the 50th anniversary of Wonderful Life approaching, and with Blockbuster purchasing a stake in Republic, and a merger with Aaron's spelling entertainment on the table, Goldsmith is looking for ways to increase the value of Republic, which will sweeten the proposition of acquisition by a bigger fish. He turns to corporate attorney James Tierney. Wouldn't it be nice for them if they could regain control of wonderful life? They hatch a plan, as they explained to Jim. I want to make showings of wonderful life rare enough that the networks will be eager enough to air it during the holidays and make a deal out of it. But I'm sure that's something that he told me. So I'm sure they'd ask, why do you want to do this? You know, he would have said, look, you know, here's what we'd like to do. And, you know, we've had this idea that we could maybe make a, like, you have it as a special release on video and have it as a primetime special. And so, yeah, we're not going to let all these stations air it. You know, we're sending out the season to 
Tierney, the Republic lawyer, tells Jim, We're trying to resolve this without filing 200 lawsuits. We would resolve all of them, but we'd like to win this amicably first. Jim wonders, if Republic has story rights to the greatest gift or any other story rights that would allow them to control showings of the movie Wonderful Life now, why have they not asserted those rights earlier? The answer to that one is never made totally clear to Jim. Uh, But Republic has also gone out and purchased rights to songs written before Wonderful Life was made that were used in the soundtrack. Any local station airing the movie, with the soundtrack embedded under every scene, would seem to be violating Republic's newly acquired license to the music, regardless of whether the movie itself is or is not in the public domain. My recollection is buying the music rights was the key element. It wasn't so much as saying we own, you know, because if they theoretically own the rights from, you know, ever since Cynthia failed to renew it, if they still owned it, they theoretically could have tried to invoke it then. But obviously they felt, you know, let's get the, you know, get the music rights. And that's what kind of put it over the top. I I imagine there was some bit of uncertainty uh, involved in terms of, is that enough to, to accomplish what you want to accomplish? Having the rights to the short story and the music. The music was a, was a pretty clever thing to do. Because then, as he pointed out, you have two things there. You also own the negative. But, you know, you have two things there that you can use to try to enforce this. Those two elements, Republic's vaguely stated rights to story related to Wonderful Life and their acquisition of the music, are characterized by lawyer Tierney to Jim as two barrels of a shotgun. Jeff Williams again. You've got all these small TV stations and they don't have deep pockets. You know, you're not going to go to court for the right to show this one movie for free at Christmas. I mean, I don't think there was one actual court case. James Tierney basically just threatened a lot of lawsuits and all these stations said, oh, okay, okay, we won't, we won't show it. And now they've got it. And, you know, maybe it is theirs, maybe it's not. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Republic and the corporations that acquire Republic and NBC go on to make millions from Wonderful Life over the next three decades, thanks to Tierney. Now, Tierney is an interesting fellow. While helping Republic in their effort to regain control of Wonderful Life, he was also working on another little operation for another client. The Los Angeles Times ex-prosecutor charged in art fraud case. A former federal prosecutor has been charged in a case that underscores the potential for fraud in the complex world of fine art insurance. James P. Tierney, who worked as a federal prosecutor in New York and Los Angeles before entering private practice, aided one of his clients in a conspiracy to fake the theft of works by Picasso and Monet and defraud two insurance companies, according to a document federal prosecutors filed in the U.S. District Court in Los Angeles. Tierney, who became a prominent entertainment lawyer, faces one count of aiding and abetting wire fraud. His attorney said Tierney will cooperate in the federal investigation of Stephen G. Cooperman, a retired ophthalmologist. It is a little bit like a like a Tarantino movie in that you, you have these kind of like really uh, kind of outrageous characters. Jeff Leeds is also a Los Angeles Times reporter in the 1990s, covering the media industry, when he takes an interest in the James Tierney art fraud case. This doctor named Stephen Cooperman, in the course of becoming fairly wealthy, um, became an, a pretty avid art collector. So what the government essentially say uh, initially is that Cooperman and some co-conspirators had arranged to have the paintings stolen so that he could file, you know, what he knew would be a fraudulent claim. So I don't really know um, how or when they became friends. Um, but but Tierney, you know, was a Tierney was a, a, a certainly successful um, entertainment lawyer in his own right, um, and in in various cases, it represented people like Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, actors like Timothy Hutton, and others. I never would have imagined that the the Cooperman case and the the Tierney case would be connected to It's a Wonderful Life. Tierney was charged ultimately by the government with his role in this sort of conspiracy to steal the artwork from Cooperman's home and file the false insurance claims. He cooperated in the investigation of Cooperman. Tierney said, you know, in retrospect, he felt like this was a terrible mistake and that as as Cooperman's friend, he should have gotten Cooperman to take responsibility for the the difficult financial situation that he'd gotten himself into. And he said, I didn't help my friend take responsibility. And that's a mistake that I'll be paying for for a long time. The government had recordings of, of Tierney speaking with Cooperman about the uh, sort of conspiracy to to disappear the the paintings. In these recordings, he actually suggests to Tierney that they destroy the paintings with uh, with garden clippers. And Tierney uh, doesn't that, that doesn't happen. Tierney suggests that they actually return the paintings to the insurance companies. And Cooperman says to him, uh, "Sleeping dogs are best left sleeping." The paintings were found in the storage locker of Tierney's one-time law partner, James Little, who claimed to prosecutors he had brought them to Cleveland unknowingly at the behest of Tierney. 
Little's name, by the way, uh, can also be found at the top of those cease and desist letters that went out to TV stations in 1993 on behalf of Republic. Justice Department lawyers later alleged that Tierney also had been providing illegal kickbacks in an unrelated case. Uh, For the insurance fraud case, the man who managed to get Republic control of Wonderful Life was convicted and sentenced to eight months in jail, surrendering his legal license. It's a Wonderful Life is really about this question of what if and what happened if an individual person was not around. And I think that's a a close relative of another question, um, which I think Tierney asked, which was what what would have happened if I just made different decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think there there obviously is a is a you know a sort of morality tale here, and as we said, I think that in the same way that the movie through fiction uh, asks us to to question what is our value, what is our place here, what can we contribute, and what would happen if we weren't around, you know, I think the the real story, the actual story of Tierney and this uh, this friend of his is about, I guess, what happens if we were to make different and better decisions. At the time this was going on, you know, Tierney was kind of representing Republic and and, uh, in trying to sort of regain control of what they probably knew was a a really lucrative title to have. In situations like this, and uh, in a sense, um, you know, I don't know if if people would draw this parallel, but but in a certain way, you know, you could sort of say that the, the studio is almost acting as the as the potter here in trying to prevent the little guy from making use of uh, this genuine and kind of and heartfelt story. It's tough to say if, if Tierney saw any any kind of conflicts in, in his own mind there. J. Max Robbins has been closely following the changes in the media business for decades as part of the Paley Center and the Center for Communication. When It's a Wonderful Life came out, it was a failure. It bankrupted Liberty, the studio that was started by Capra and some other directors so they could have their artistic freedom. And then through some kind of, I guess, negligence, it slips into the public domain. That is, the movie slips into the public domain, but the elements inherent to the underlying story, The Greatest Gift, do not. It's a little confusing, I know. That all of a sudden gives it all this value and all this new appreciation. The audience votes. They see this thing because TV stations play it over and over again, and like it becomes this phenom. And then all of a sudden it has real value. And the powers that be in the industry say, whoa, 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 whoa. Now let's make some money off this film. With media consolidation, from a bottom line point of view, you see how people making these deals see value where others don't. I just think it was like, you know, all bets are off. I mean, even though in 92 through 2000, you had Democrats in the White House, they were very pro-business. It seemed like every week there was another merger. United Press International. Spelling Entertainment Group and Republic Pictures announced Monday they will merge operations in a $100 million deal, showing the expansion of Blockbuster Entertainment in Hollywood. Home video giant Blockbuster bought nearly half of TV program producer Spelling earlier this year for $165 million. Spelling said it will use the money from the new shares issued to Blockbuster to finance the merger with Republic. Upon the closing of the merger, Russell Goldsmith, chairman and chief executive officer of Republic, will become president and chief executive officer of Spelling. Blockbuster has been on a buying spree for the past year. With Goldsmith claiming control of Wonderful Life among its other properties, the potential for Republic's acquisition by Viacom becomes real. 
And a lot of what people wanted to have is they wanted more libraries. You know, you have libraries, you can create networks. You have both content and distribution. Regulations got pushed aside. You know, you can own TV stations and you can own studios and you can own cable systems. You know, you, all these things come together. Washington Post, January 8th, 1994. In a drama worthy of a Hollywood cliffhanger, video retail giant Blockbuster Entertainment and cable TV programmer Viacom announced an $8.4 billion merger yesterday and in turn said they will pool their efforts to buy Paramount Communications with Blockbuster's help. Viacom's merger with Blockbuster demonstrated the lengths to which Viacom, the owner of MTV and other cable television properties, is willing to go to stay in the running for Paramount. Paramount movies and TV programs are coveted because they will someday feed the much-predicted 500-channel TV system. Viacom's tenacious 70-year-old chairman, Sumner Redstone, would become chairman of Viacom Blockbuster and own 61% of the voting stock, a stake worth around $5.1 billion. They won, we lost. That's how QVC concedes defeat to Viacom in the five-month multi-billion dollar battle for Paramount. While viewed as a personal duel between Viacom Chairman Sumner Redstone and QVC Chief Barry Diller, the struggle for Paramount is also a quest for content to program the voracious information superhighway. And so the claim to control of Wonderful Life seemingly transfers to Sumner Redstone, the 21st richest man in America. Soon reuniting the movie with Paramount for the first time since they sold it off to NTA in 1955. So you just saw this flurry of mergers. Cap Cities buys ABC and then Disney buys ABC. The Time Warner merger, the disastrous AOL merger. Not everything worked out as planned. You see all this consolidation in the cable business. You see the telcos getting into the entertainment business. You see all these companies scale up. This idea was, if we don't eat up somebody else, they're going to eat us up. The number of big media companies got like halved in the space of a few years. There's something very seductive about the entertainment business where people will pay a premium. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. George Carlin, the comedian, has a strong opinion about all of this one decade after Wonderful Life is snatched from the public, seemingly to help feed a series of acquisitions and mergers as he tells audiences at his show in 2005. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. Imagine where we'd be now if Shakespeare was still in the, in, in, under copyright. We'd be able to do fewer things with Shakespeare, and we like doing things with Shakespeare. Peter Yazzie is an attorney widely known for his specialty in copyright law. 
He has a strong point of view on this subject, which will become clear as you listen. As such, he has followed the story of wonderful life over the years, and he has long suspected there may be some bad interpretations out there, ones that have coincidentally served the interests of certain corporations. Public domain goes back forever, and its purpose is to make sure that after the benefits of copyright have been enjoyed by whoever is entitled to them for a fixed period of time, the public at large can enjoy the the availability of that material as source material. Peter is not aware of any instance in which Republic in the 1990s or Viacom or Paramount to this day have publicly challenged that NTA made a big whoops in failing to renew copyright to the movie Wonderful Life in 1974. And, as such, Peter believes all versions of the movie's scripts fell into public domain, too. The script has no independent copyright. Uh, and honestly, they I don't think they've even ever asserted that it does. And if they had, they would have been dead wrong. Um, and the reason is that the script was written for the film and incorporated into the film. And insofar as the script was incorporated into the film and the film went into the public domain, those bits of the script went right along with it. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash TheShot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Remember those two barrels of Republic Attorney James Tierney's metaphorical shotgun? 
the one he brought around to small TV outlets in 1993. Peter believes Republic did have a little ammunition in that one shotgun barrel, music rights, thanks to their late-in-the-game exclusive licensing of some of the popular songs used in the soundtrack. Uh, ones that had not been written for the movie and therefore would not have had any possibility of falling into the public domain. Regarding that other barrel of Tierney's shotgun, Story writes, Peter says it's hard to assess, having himself admittedly not seen any historic or potentially ongoing agreements that exist between the greatest gift writer and his heirs and Republic and their successors. He therefore can only speculate that there could have been merit to Republic's story-based argument for control of Wonderful Life in 1993. Switching subjects for a moment, a few times earlier in this episode, you've heard reference to that 1990s Supreme Court decision related to Sheldon Abend. Uh, Legally, this case with regard to Wonderful Life is a total red herring. But despite this, it served as what Hollywood people might call an inciting incident for Republic's sudden push to regain control. Thirteen years before, it was Peter Yazzie himself who had argued for the opposite outcome in a case before the U.S. Second Circuit Court of Appeals. On the one hand, you're arguing about, you know, doctrine, it says here in the statute book, and we should interpret that as meaning whatever. And then on the other hand, you're arguing about policy. You're saying a good rule would be this one, and the other rule wouldn't be so good. And we argued that once the movie was made, it was no longer under control of the rights holders in the book or story. We said that made sense because that was a rule that was likely to maximize the amount of exposure that the derivative work would receive. There would be fewer hurdles to jump for anyone who wanted to use the derivative work. And that would be true even in cases where the derivative work was under copyright. Would certainly be true for cases in which the derivative work was in the public domain. So in a sense, the 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 what happened in the in the eighties with its a wonderful life seemed to vindicate the policy argument that we had been making. The appeals court agrees with Peter in nineteen seventy seven, but other appeals courts rule differently over the next decade plus, setting up a need for Supreme Court clarity that comes in nineteen ninety with the Abend case. You've heard The Greatest Gift brought up several times over this episode, the story on which Wonderful Life was based. While NTA did indeed fail to renew the copyright for the movie in 1974, the same was not true for writer Philip Van Doren Stern. Philip dutifully renewed copyright to his own story in 1971. Herein lies the key to everything. You see, he held on to the copyright over the rest of his life and passed it on to his four heirs, his only daughter and his three granddaughters, 
But the Second Circuit Court of Appeals decision in favor of Peter's argument at the time seemed to have affirmed a wall of sorts between Philip's original story and the movie that was based on the story. Then came 1990, and this Sheldon Abend, to whom we've been alluding, who took the man who brought George Bailey to life, Jimmy Stewart himself, to the U.S. Supreme Court, along with other stakeholders in Jimmy's movie, Rear Window, in a case called Stewart versus Abend. Kelly Abend was really in a different business, and that was the business of buying up loose literary rights and then turning around and using those rights to threaten, I don't want to say extort, but but to 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 extract settlement. Sometimes it was it was just the nuisance value. One day Abend acquired the story rights behind Cornell Woolrich's It Had to Be Murder which had been loosely adapted into Jimmy Stewart's and others' classic movie, Rear Window. In it, Jimmy had played a character uh, one might almost imagine George Bailey could have become in another universe, had he actually lived out his youthful dreams in the city. It's about time you got married, before you turn into a lonesome and bitter old man. Yeah, yet you just see me. Rushing home to a hot apartment to listen to the automatic laundry and the electric dishwasher and the garbage disposal and the nagging wife. Uh, so, Ivan had bought the these rights from Chase Manhattan Bank for $650. And in this case, he bought low and attempted to sell high. Hubbins' rear window suit eventually ended up before the highest court in America, and this time the justices sided with Hubbins' argument, not the argument Peter had won in the 1977 case. Oh, this takes me back. It takes me back. Uh, this was one of the great disappointments of my life, this decision. This is a Supreme Court decision, the Hubbins decision, which basically said the derivative work is always tethered to the new work. The, the, the derivative work never achieves escape velocity, as it were. The rear window ruling involved copyright renewal in an underlying story after the author of the story had died. So this did not pertain to Wonderful Life. As you'll remember, the author of The Greatest Gift, Philip, did renew the copyright to his story while alive. But, in its ruling, the Avent case made crystal clear that a derivative film is tethered, using Peter's terminology, to the story on which it's based. A derivative film's copyright covers only those elements of the film original to the filmmakers. The rest of the elements of a derivative film all those elements original to the underlying story are protected by copyright in the underlying story. The facts that are the facts of It's a Wonderful Life. But it, the decision was clear enough in its implications so that it set the scene for Republic's and then Paramount's strategy with respect to recapturing control of 
It's a Wonderful Life. But I think it's probable that between 1990 and for the next decade or so, the Republic Paramount claim that, that because it was the successor in interest to the, the Stern family's rights in the greatest gift story, it could control who could broadcast It's a Wonderful Life and When had some merit. If you have been exploiting the film in any media, you have been violating my client's rights under the copyright laws of the United States. Then Republic and its successors have been taking the position that based on their transferred interests in the story rights, they are entitled to license um, not only new productions, but also in particular uh, broadcasts and uh, and showings of the film itself. So presumably they still have those rights. If the Van Dorns gave a new grant to Republic, maybe Republic just went to them and asked for a quick claim, said, you know, if you've still got any rights in this, you know, we'll, you know, give them to us and we'll pay you a modest amount of money. They could have done that. Paramount, which, as you'll remember, acquired Republic, certainly seems to believe they still hold some form of rights beyond music. 2013. An independent company announces they plan to proceed with a sequel to Wonderful Life, stating publicly that this is based on their assumption the movie is in the public domain. On Monday, Florida-based Star Partners, a film financing entity, and Nashville-based Hummingbird Productions, which is one of the biggest producers of music for commercials, announced they were teaming up for a sequel to the classic film It's a Wonderful Life. The producers had lined up Carolyn Grimes, who played George Bailey's daughter Zuzu in the original film, to reprise her role as Zuzu, now an angel as she visits Bailey's grandson, who is far from perfect. Hummingbird's Bob Farnsworth says the rights to Wonderful Life were in the public domain, and that he had written a screenplay with Martha Bolton, a former staff writer on Bob Hope specials. But now Paramount says, not so fast. A studio spokesman told us, No project relating to It's a Wonderful Life can proceed without a license from Paramount. To date, these individuals have not obtained any of the necessary rights, and we would take all appropriate steps to protect those rights. So, it appears for now anyway, that Paramount intends to continue forcefully asserting that it holds the power over this movie. Their music rights would not allow, in this 2013 instance, an ability to challenge a sequel. So they seem to be asserting a claim to copyright in the underlying story, The Greatest Gift. They don't have copyright in the story, and they've never come to us for copyright in the story. The only people who have ever held copyright in the story, The Greatest Gift, are my grandfather Philip, his heirs, his only daughter and his three granddaughters, my mother and my two sisters and me, and the small family company that we heirs created to hold and manage the greatest gift copyright. Sarah Robinson, here to clarify matters. She's one of those three granddaughters of Philip Van Doren Stern, and really among the only people on earth who can clarify all of this. Regarding any story rights held by Republic and now Paramount, she says, You know, to hold copyright in something is to hold a whole bunch or bundle of exclusive rights in that thing. 
1944, when my grandfather sold the movie rights to his story, the rights to make movies from the story and TV and some limited radio, he didn't sell the copyright in the story or any of the other rights in the bundle. He held on to copyright and those other rights. That 1944 agreement was very specific in describing the movie, TV, and limited radio rights he was selling. And the agreement also stated plainly that my grandfather held the copyright in the story. In fact, the agreement required him to renew the copyright when the time came, which he did, of course. My grandfather made this agreement in 1944 with a Hollywood agent named Frank Vincent. Vincent transferred the agreement to RKO, which turned it over to Frank Capra. And in 1946, Frank Capra used the 1944 agreement, the movie rights in the 1944 agreement, to make It's a Wonderful Life. At some point after that, both the movie and the 1944 rights agreement made their way to NTA, and of course, NTA failed to renew copyright in the movie. NTA later changed its name to Republic. And in the 1990s, when Republic made its claims about rights it held in the story, all Republic had for rights in the story were those same rights that Capra had had back in 1946, those 1944 rights to make motion pictures of the story and TV and limited radio. Republic didn't have copyright in the story or any other rights in the story's copyright bundle. My grandfather never let go of that copyright, except when he died and passed it on to us, his heirs, via his will. So all those times that Tierney and Republic said, or implied, they held copyright to the story, it was always held by Philip and his heirs and them alone? In that case, Tierney's two-barreled shotgun would have had at least one empty. The story writes, and had some enterprising person back in the early 1990s been able to strip the soundtrack of those popular songs Republic had licensed and simply replace them, well, uh, Tierney may well have ended up totally unarmed. Just imagine that alternative universe. Would the Republic and Aaron Spelling merger have gone forward with that nice little promotion for Russell Goldsmith? Would Republic have still enticed sales with Blockbuster and Viacom? And what about NBC? Without Wonderful Life to build its holiday programming around so effectively. Interesting to think about, isn't it? And another thing, this isn't about copyright to the greatest gift, because as I've said, copyright's always been held by Philip or his heirs. But it's interesting. The copyright law allows authors of works copyrighted before 1978 to terminate or take back grants of rights they've made after 56 years have passed. And if an author dies before 56 years passed, the author's heir gets that right to terminate. So 56 years after my grandfather granted out those 1944 rights to make movies, TV, and limited radio from his story, my mother, his heir, terminated that 1944 grant. That was in 2000. And the upshot of this is that in 2000, Republic lost the rights it had held in The Greatest Gift, namely those movie, TV, and limited radio rights. My mother got those rights back, and she placed them into our small family company. But in the Potter-dominated corporate America of today, do the actual legalities make any difference? Or is it about the golden rule? May he who has the gold makes the rules. A guy by the name of Michael Klinghoffer, who was um, a TV producer in New York for for decades found out that the only thing copywritten about It's a Wonderful Life was the soundtrack and um, took it to Comedy Central and said, 
hey, why don't you guys do something with this? And my friend Kent Alterman at the time was uh, head of development in New York for Comedy Central. And he had like sort of an open call of writers that he knew, like come in, pitch your idea for what to do with It's a Wonderful Life. My idea was very meta because I grew up seeing the movie rerun over and over and over and over and over again. And so my idea was that who would be more sick of this movie than George Bailey? Hiya, George. Hi, George. Uh, Ernie, I'm sick of doing this darn movie. Would you mind driving me to another one? Uh, George, you're supposed to ask for a ride home. George Bailey, what's all this ad-libbing? Ad-libbing? I am not. So I took that to Kent, and he said, yeah, this is great. This is the way to go. Do you, are you interested in working with these guys, the Upright Citizens Brigade? Which at the time hadn't, hadn't done anything on TV. They were, I think, about to start work on their first pilot. They're really talented and they, you guys could all do the voices. And, and um, I did the voice of George Bailey just as a scratch track until we found, you know, the star that would do it. They couldn't get anyone, up, get anyone with a name to do it. Come on, Mary, play along. You of all people should be interested in turning this movie into something else for once. Just do the script. It'll be great. We'll make real money. We'll be in color. When the UCB came in, it became just kind of like this camp basically where we were spending all our time together watching the footage trying to sync up the lips with what we wanted the story to be well i can't marry you because well george i'm gay mary that's the truth i'm madly in love with sam wayright sam and i are lovers you can ask anyone let's call and ask him fine let's call him right now i've got his number let's get him on the all phone right. sam wainwright please Hey, Sam, just calling to make sure you know we're both gay. Now tell Mary. Here's Mary. Me gay? I can't speak for George, but there's no way I'm gay. I have three, four different girlfriends at any given time. Believe me. I've had sex with women in nice hotels, cheap motels, tents, bathrooms. You name it, I've had sex with a woman there. It's really interesting, like, doing this project, doing the Escape from Wonderful Life, and taking apart and putting it back together in a, you know, in a very irreverent way, and I think, you know, if you were really a hardcore um, fan of the film, you would take issue with it, probably. But I have to say, from my standpoint, having that experience made me love that movie more than ever. I mean, I really... It's such a weird movie, first of all. Like, structurally, you know, I, I've written a bunch of screenplays and and I read a lot of books on screenwriting and gone to, you know, studied screenwriting. There's no teacher that would ever teach that form of a screenplay. It is bonkers. And, and the intensity of the darkness of it, too, is very unusual for that time. The, free, the freedom that the filmmakers felt to go into this sort of deep, dark underbelly of, like, human experience was um revelatory and um and then sort of breaking down the movie like when we went we were going scene to scene and watching these performances over and over again you're like wow they're you know everyone was all in on this movie like nobody was nobody was phoning it in i mean if in in the strict strictest sense of the word it is a comedy right but it is has a lot of darkness in it and a lot of sadness and a lot of regret. And I think like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, if what I've done is representative of that in any way, but I, do, I definitely feel like a lot of my work 
has that, especially especially in the last few years, has gotten very, has that sort of heart of darkness to it. You know, even though I've never written anything that wasn't a comedy, it's always, there's always a happy ending because I can't, I can't deal with that thing where everything's just shit and then something ends, you know, it makes me want to kill myself. So I always write, I always write with hope, but, uh, which is, it's a, this is a very hopeful movie, you know, um, but it's not afraid to travel into these sort of dark re recesses. Really weird too. And, 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 and then, you know, you've already seen him be kind of the Jimmy Stewart character you expect. And then the, a lot of the movie seems like it's just undermining that, you know, and, and, and making him, like you said, almost like a thug and like, uh, this, this weird guy, you know, like everyone's like, what is with this guy? <laughs> you know, he's, you know, getting drunk and punching people and harassing women. And, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a really good point. Well, that, I think like, you know, Capra did a really great job, obviously. And. I think that was, that, that was his thing. Obviously, it's more than it, there's more than one movie in this movie, right? So when he goes back in time with Clarence, it is it is a noir film because Pottersville is is very much a noir town. It, it, it's 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 the dark. You know, someone described uh, film noir as the dark side of the American dream, and that that's Pottersville, right? Like it's what happens when unbridled uh, profit seeking runs everything. And all all the other sort of protections and 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 social contracts fall away. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
Today, Viacom and CBS announced the two media and entertainment companies will merge. At a news conference in New York, Viacom chairman and CEO Sumner Redstone met with reporters to discuss the deal. Five years after Wonderful Life first seemingly falls under the control of Redstone, this partnership seems almost dictated by destiny. What we are announcing today is a merge of equals. We will create an $80 billion giant, the largest media transaction in the history of the media industry. And this will generate enormous benefits for the shareholders of both companies. This singularly powerful enterprise will be home to the number one cable network group here and around the globe, the number one radio group, the number one outdoor advertising company, the number one entertainment brands in the most coveted demographic categories, the number one TV station group, the number one broadcast network, the number one television programmer, the number one provider of rentable home entertainment. We will be global leaders in virtually every facet of the wonderful, diverse media and entertainment industry. Frank Rich, uh, the, who was then writing editorials for the op-ed page of the New York Times, wrote a really great op-ed about it. And uh, it was a casualty. Uh, at the time, it was like a casualty of uh, vertical integration. So um, even, though, even though we embarked on the project because the soundtrack of It's a Wonderful Life had lapsed into the public domain, like nobody had copyrighted it. The film, the visual film was in the public domain. The soundtrack was actually copywritten. So like the music, the score was copywritten, but there was this technicality where like, if we took the soundtrack off, we would basically be able to do what we wanted with the visuals. So, and that's still true. That, that's always been true and that's true today. But what happened was, when we moved closer to completion and the, um, you know, our corporate uh, godfathers heard about this at Viacom, uh, alarm bells went off because even though it's all in the public domain, Viacom at that time had bought, I think, I believe it was Aaron Spelling Entertainment and Aaron Spelling Entertainment had acquired it's a Wonderful Life among its properties. And so Viacom had licensed to NBC the right to broadcast It's a Wonderful Life every year for, you know, millions of dollars. So because one arm of Viacom didn't know what the other arm was doing, like suddenly we were in in jeopardy of violating Viacom's uh, exclusive deal to NBC for the rights to It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and they killed the project. You know, it's all about greed. It doesn't have anything to do with helping the artists or anyone associated with the movie, right? This is all greed. So, you know, when it fell into the public domain, it, nobody who, who was involved with the film could directly benefit from any, any, any longer. So it was actually great for people to be able to see that movie, like whenever they wanted to. And, and, and I think that's responsible for a success. I isn't it kind of a, like not that successful when it was released and people find it a little too dark when it was like first released and it was only on these repeated viewings that people went like, oh shit, this is a masterpiece, right? So it brought back something that had been, was probably gonna be marginalized into the mainstream that in my opinion has a very good message and a very good heart, right? And then, you know, some, and, and 
God bless, you know, Peggy Lipton's dad or granddad or <laughs> for, for letting it drop. And then fuck those guys who found a way to kind of worm it back out. You know, like, I mean, I, I feel like, I feel like the copyright laws are way too strict in this country. And I mean, a lot of that has to do with Disney and, you know, Disney's constant campaign to keep Mickey Mouse out of the public domain. And, uh, you know, and fuck them. On November 18th, 1928, Mickey Mouse was introduced to the world in the film Steamboat Willie. But this may be one of the last birthdays Mickey celebrates as the intellectual property of Disney. Copyrights for the popular character are set to expire on January 1st, 2024. Mickey might have become public property sooner, except that each time the copyright on Steamboat Willie was set to lapse, Disney and others pushed Congress to lengthen U.S. copyright terms. Honestly, the person who's been overlooked in the Wonderful Life saga is our grandfather, Philip Van Doren Stern. Philip wrote the story on which the film is based, the story about George and George's wish to have never been born, the stranger at the bridge who granted George's wish, and so on. That story sprung from Philip's imagination, and he worked on it over a period of years before he published it. He copyrighted it, and he renewed copyright when the time came. For a bunch of reasons, neither he nor his heirs ever sought to control showings of the film It's a Wonderful Life after NTA failed to renew copyright in the film. But he and we have worked hard to let people know that they can't make adaptations of It's a Wonderful Life without getting a license from us. This is because to make an adaptation of Wonderful Life is to use the underlying story. The only exceptions to this are if the adaptation is based solely on elements of the film that are not in the story, or if the adaptation, say a spoof, could be considered fair use. Any other adaptation, remake, or whatever, in any medium, including since 2000, movie, TV, and all radio, requires a license from us, the copyright holders. And if it isn't licensed, it's an infringement. And I can tell you a key element of any license from us is that you credit Philip and his story. A lot of people have just not understood this or ignored it. We spent a lot of time and effort pursuing infringers. And we're, you know, we're just, for a long time, we were just four people. Now we're just three, as our mother, Philip's daughter, passed away in 2019. In truth, we've always been successful in getting infringers to understand that they're infringing. Over the past few years, we've made six settlement agreements that together cover 12 infringing dramatic stage or stage musical works by 11 different writers and composers and five licensors of those works. And then again, there have always been people who do understand that they need rights from us, and we have granted options for various types of productions. And I'm very hopeful about them. I would just say on those, stay tuned. <laughs> but the point here is simply, let's not forget that copyright law protects, for a time, the rights of creators. Walt Disney, definitely, he should have benefited from creating that character. But he's been dead for, like, forever, you know? So it's just like... I feel like creators should benefit from their creations. And and I, I will go to the mat on that. I'm, you know, I work, uh, I'm a hardcore member of the Writers Guild and everything else. And, you know, I, I believe that you should get residuals on your work and you should get these, you know, royalties or whatever. But, you know, after a certain point, fuck it, it belongs to the world. I mean, that's what art is anyway. It, it always, you know, belongs to the world. And there was something very um liberating about being able just to go in and cut up the movie and reorder it and like i said uh if you're a hardcore fan of the movie you probably wouldn't want it 
you know, you probably wouldn't care for it, but that's okay. You know, it was, it was, it was for people who came at it from a certain point of view, who wanted to laugh, be entertained by this wonderful movie in a slightly different way than, and that was fine. And like I said, and that's gone and the movie is still there. So the movie has stood the test of time. Principal Skinner, the happiest place on earth is a registered Disneyland copyright. Well, gentlemen, it's just a small school carnival. And it's heading for a great big lawsuit. You made a big mistake, Skinner. Well, so did you. You got an ex-Green Beret mad. <laughs> Copyright expired. I remember when Mashusta, the big Japanese electric company bought uh, Universal and they seemed like they were paying a big premium. Sony had bought Columbia. Who's really running the show and shaping our mass consciousness? Certainly you have to look at Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google as major players who all are in the distribution business. They're all in the advertising business and they also really command our attention. And then you look at the big media concerns, Disney, Comcast, NBC, Universal, the two parts of the Murdoch empire and the influence that Fox News wields. And to a lesser extent, what is now paramount. That's a lot of power consolidated in a small handful of companies. I think it's a little too simple to assume that people running all these companies are potters. Maybe Jeff Bezos is a potter. Elon Musk, definitely a potter. Rupert Murdoch, potter. Is Bob Iger a potter? No, not really. I don't think, you know, are the heads of Google potters? No, not really. Mark Zuckerberg, definitely a potter. I think that when you put profit-seeking motive above all else, you're taking your eye off the ball of what impact what you're creating has on society. Everything is, becomes about shareholder value. And in the wake of all this, who gets burned are consumers. You know, we end up paying more and, and jobs are lost. Venerable brands known for creativity get destroyed. It, it was part of, a, I think, an overall change in corporate America. Big news tonight about our company. As of tomorrow, Viacom CBS will be known as Paramount. President and CEO Bob Backish says it is an exciting opportunity to bring all brands of the company's premium entertainment and news, including CBS, under one name. Backish and Board of Directors Chair Sherry Redstone say the Paramount name harkens back to the company's roots in the golden age of Hollywood. Viacom CBS stock will trade on NASDAQ under the symbol PARA, short for Paramount. George Bailey was never born. Visit SaveGeorgeBailey.com to join the mission. There you'll find links to works by this episode's participants. Learn more about how to celebrate George Bailey Day on Saturday, December 9th, and annually the second Saturday of December hereafter, by hosting your own Wonderful Life viewing party. Tell your friends to listen to this show, subscribe, like, comment, and post about it on social media. Hashtag SaveGeorgeBailey. Subscribe to our Patreon to hear uncut interviews and bonus content. The podcast also available on YouTube. 
iHeartMedia presents a double asterisk iHeartMedia co-production in association with True Stories. Created, written, and directed by Joseph, Kurt Angfer, and Reyna Vyshelsky. Kurt Angfer, producer and supervising editor. Reyna Vyshelsky, producer and journalist. Elizabeth Marcus, editor. Roy Sillings, narrator. George Bailey theme song by Carolyn Sills. Buyer albums. Soundtrack composed by Zachary Walter. Buy his albums and the original soundtrack to this podcast available wherever you get your music. Mallory Kinoy, co-producer, writer's assistant, archival producer, and fact checker. John Autry, sound engineer, additional editing, sound design, and mix. Executive producers, Dave Cassidy, Kurt Angfer, Lindsay Hoffman and Bethann Macaluso for iHeartMedia, John Duffy for Double Asterisk, Ruth Vaca for True Stories, Reyna Vyshelsky for Double Asterisk and True Stories. Elizabeth Honkuch, associate producer. Brandon Lavoy and Ryan Pennington, consulting producers. Keith Sklar, contract legal. Peter Yazi, copyright and fair use legal. Maddie Akers, archival specialist. Ron Kadish and Benji Michaels, publicists. Kavya Santhanam and Marley Weaver, marketing and promotions. Art and web design by Aaron Kim. Interns were Kyra Gray, Emma Ramirez, Eva Stewart, and Taya Wilson. Podcast license for Philip Van Doren Stern's The Greatest Gift provided by The Greatest Gift Corporation. Their attorney is Kevin Koloff. Recorded at David Weber's Airtime Studios in Bloomington, Indiana. This episode featured, in chronological order, Jeff Williams, Jim Bates, Jeff Leeds, J. Max Robbins, Peter Yazzie, Sarah Robinson, and Jay Martell. With appearances by the cast of Wonderful Life and of Escape from Wonderful Life and the brief voices, music, and artistry of Hollywood, public persons, and news media professionals and one unknown NBC promo narrator and music writer via clips used under the still-existing legal doctrine of fair use. The Potters are working on that one, though. Jay Martell provided use of the still-never-fully-released Escape from Wonderful Life which he produced and starred in, alongside performances by the writers Matt Besser, Amy Poehler, Ian Roberts, and Matt Walsh, directed by David Zeef. The usages of it also fit fair use. The voice of the news article that unpacked Republic's plans for Wonderful Life was by James Bates, reading his article for the Los Angeles Times. Those factual inaccuracies we mention are in one paragraph and would not have been knowable to Jim at the time. To be clear, that came from what he was told by Republic. The voice of Russell Goldsmith was played by Kurt Angfer, and the voice of James Tierney was played by Jason Klom. Paraphrased from words each spoke to James Bates, who wrote it in his article for the Los Angeles Times, and additionally for Tierney from a 1993 letter he wrote. The voice of the Art Theft News article was by Jeff Leeds from words written by him in articles for the Los Angeles Times. The voice of the Spelling Republic merger reporting, from words written uncredited in an article for the United Press International, and of the blockbuster Viacom merger reporting, from words written in an article by Paul Farhi for the Washington Post, was played by Keith Murray. The voice of the Wonderful Life sequel reporting was played by Bill Fitzpatrick, from words written by Aaron Couch for The Hollywood Reporter. The voice of the Paramount representative was played by Elizabeth Marcus, from words spoken to Couch for his Hollywood Reporter article. Go to doubleasteriskmedia.com to hear our other limited-run podcasts, Who is Rich Blee?, after the Uprising, with a bold new season in St. Louis coming summer 2024, and Origins, Birth of a Pandemic. And subscribe to True Stories New Weekly, Everybody Has a Podcast, with Ruth and Ray.
If you are feeling like you're on the bridge, please call the AFSP's Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988 into your phone or contact the Crisis Text Line by texting 741-741. Consider donating to or volunteering with AFSP or your local Habitat for Humanity and make George Bailey proud. We're not affiliated with them, though. Copyright 2023, double asterisk, Inc. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com/theshy to get a fifty percent discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July fourteenth. Subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.